So let's turn our attention to Scripture today. We spent, uh, we spent the vast majority of this year looking at the lives of the patriarchs. Our theme for this year was True North, and we have been looking at, uh, at uh, what it means to be a people who are spiritually true north, a people who are doing and invested and committed to the things that God has called us to. Uh, and so we've been looking at this through the lives of the patriarchs. Over the past couple of weeks, we've paused in this study looking specifically at the patriarchs uh, to, to notice several features of the lives of the patriarchs that are fulfilled in Christ. Um, uh, by the way, I just uh, not this is not for anything other than the fact that we have some visitors with us this morning, some guests with us this morning. If you w- if it would be helpful for your children to be in children's church, we have children's church going on next door. Just reminding everybody of that for the sake of those who are who are visiting with us, that is available. Okay, it's not mandatory; it's just available. Um, uh, so uh, so we've been looking at these features in the lives of the patriarchs. And, um, uh, and then seeing how, how these features are fulfilled or, or uh, how they point to the life of Christ. So, for example, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are all described as being great men. They were great. And so we looked at greatness in the teaching and in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, what, it, what, what he calls great and then um, uh, 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 we really emphasize the importance of servanthood and how servanthood is an element of, of what it means to be great. Um, today, I want to turn our attention to a different subject and, uh, and focus for a few minutes this morning on the importance of names. Uh, let's, let's take a quick look at the patriarchs and see the significance of the names that are given to the patriarchs. And then we're going to take that, we're going to say, what does this mean as we look at the life of the Lord Jesus? What's in a name is the title of this message this morning. So the importance of names. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17. Uh, I want to read um, several, several passages here, several scriptures here, that speak to us about the importance of names. Genesis 17, let's start in verse 1. Now, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am, the, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. So, you may have already known this, but in Genesis 1, uh, 17, 1 through 6, Abram becomes Abraham, and the name Abraham means the father of a multitude, the father of a multitude. His name is significant in what God has given him to do, in the call that God has upon his life. If you look forward at verse 15, now she's not one of the patriarchs, but uh, Sarai, verse 15, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And, and, and he changes her name. God changes her name also. The name Sarah means princess. It means princess. Um, out of curiosity, how many of you know the meaning of your name? If you know the meaning of your name, okay, a lot of you do. A lot of you do. The meaning of your name. Genesis, uh, Genesis 17, verse 19, uh, Isaac is the one patriarch whose name is not changed. But his name is given specifically for a reason and has a meaning. Verse 19, but God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. God assigns 
uh, Isaac's name to him. You will call his name Isaac. The name Isaac means laughter. And so we know what happens in the story, right? Later on, uh, this promise is renewed. The promise is given that, that Isaac is going to be born. And Sarah laughs. And, and this is just one of those instances in Scripture where God communicates with mankind uh, in, in a way that is something like this. I know what's coming before it happens. I know what's coming before it happens, right? There's nothing ahead of you that I don't already know about. You call his name Isaac. Uh, his name means laughter. And, uh, and little did they know that that was exactly going to be Sarah's response when God again announces the birth of her son to her. So, so it's a specific meaning for a specific reason. If you look forward at Genesis 32, and, and, uh, and I can't wait uh, uh, probably sometime in January to get to this passage. Um, it's, such a, it's such a massive passage and, and so full of truth. But uh, Genesis 32, if you start in verse 24, here's what we read. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So here we have the, the change of Jacob's name, which I don't know just in maybe practical terms in the way it happens and the lessons that God wants to teach us might be of all the name changes the most significant one for us to to consider and we're going to do that at some length in in a few weeks but notice for now that Jacob's name changes from Jacob which means supplanter a supplanter to Israel which means a prince of God a prince of God and it's it's, it's interesting, this name means a prince of God. Um, uh, when, when what the angel says to Jacob is, you've wrestled or you have striven with, you strove with God and man. You've wrestled, you've been an embattled person, you've been a person with, with, with struggle in your life. And you've come out on the other side. You're, you've made it to the other side. You've wrestled through the difficulty. You've made it to the other side. And, and of all the meanings of the names that God could have given to him, it could have been like, like um, uh, uh, you know, a conqueror or victorious or something. But the name means in all of that struggle, what you've come through uh, to is a place where a man who was once a supplanter has become a prince of God. And and that's the name I give you. Your name is Israel. You're a prince of God. And so throughout the lives of these patriarchs, we have these examples of the significance of their names. The significance of their names. The point is that the names of the patriarchs were important indicators. They were identifiers of who they were and of how God saw them. They each had a name that had something significant attached to it that was part of the defining feature of their lives. I don't know if this works for anyone else's family. I'm just going to tell you how it's worked for mine. Can I ask out of curiosity? Uh, and by the way, this is not a right or wrong thing. This is not like, not like if you didn't do this, you're less of a parent or anything. That's not it at all. But out of curiosity, how many of you, when you were naming your children... We're specific about looking at the meaning of the name to see if that was a name meaning you wanted to give to your children. How many of you looked at name meanings? Okay, so a lot of us have at name meanings. My wife and I did, and here's, what's, here's what, what we have noticed. And this, is, this might not be the case for any of your families at all. This is just for us. My wife and I have talked often, in fact, we've talked about it with their children, with, with our children, um, uh, about how each of our children have faced a specific challenge 
a specific test that seems to be directly related to the meaning of their names. I don't know why that is. There's been a specific test, a specific challenge. They've been specifically challenged in the area of the meaning of their names. My point is simply to say this this morning. Names mean something, and they're important. Names mean something, and they're important. Depending on how you count, there are some 200 names plus ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ throughout Scripture, depending on how you count. Um, I sat down with a cyclopedic index and just started counting all the names that were associated with the Lord Jesus. I, I don't know that the list was exhaustive, and some of them sounded a bit repetitive to me, but they had 205 names listed with the texts. 205 names listed uh, that are ascribed to the Lord Jesus. So depending on how you count them, let's just say there's a lot, okay? There's a lot of names that are associated with the Lord Jesus. This time of year, let me just take a second uh, uh, to, to give you some of the names of Christ and the reasons why that in just a few names there's such significance. So in, in the life of the Lord Jesus, much like the lives of the patriarchs, this giving of a name becomes a very significant feature of, of our Savior. Uh, and so we're just borrowing this from the patriarchs, and we're going to move right on, and we're going to focus on Jesus the rest of this morning. The significance of, of his names. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he is called Emmanuel. This is directly related to the season we're in. I'm just focusing on those names. He is Emmanuel, that is God with us. God with us. I've pointed this out before. I think this is hugely important. But when I think about God being with us, it means two things. It's not only his presence, but it's also the fact that he is for us. If you look at one of your children or you look at your spouse or you look at a friend and you say to them, I'm with you, what we're saying is, I'm here and I'm on your side. I'm for you. I'm for you. And so as we, as we think about this season that we're in, and we think about the incarnation, we think about the Lord Jesus coming to this earth, and we think of this name that is given to him, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, we can remember that the Lord Jesus becomes one of, uh, becomes one of us, is present in the human condition, and, and throughout the New Testament, we're encouraged with this fact that he knows what it's like to be with us, that he has suffered as one of us, that he has gone through the things we go through. He's been tempted like we were tempted. He is God present with us in human form. But it's more than just being present for us, present with us. Please hear this. He's for us. He's for us. Now, without making, without taking too much time, I just want to quickly point out maybe the way that he is most for us. When, when the Lord Jesus is being hung on a cross by people who have rejected him, he hangs there and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you realize what it takes to be for someone to the extent that when they're doing you wrong, harm, you are asking for their good, right? I mean, that's not easy to do, right? I'm being harmed by you, but way, the way I'm praying is that God would bless you, right? That, that, that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, nailed to a cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. He is God for us with us in the sense that he's for us, that he is promoting our well-being and seeking our good. The next one is in Isaiah chapter 9, and I, I, want, to, uh, I want to read the list to you. You are, I'm sure, familiar with the list, but I want to read the list to you, 
And I'm going to pause and ask you, you don't have to explain why, um, uh, which name, which name is the one that you most currently receive encouragement from, okay? In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 16, um, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6, says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. All right, let's take them four names. Four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Which name impacts you the greatest this morning? Which name impacts you the greatest? Here's my suspicion. If you're here today and you need counsel, you're here this morning and you lack wisdom, you're here this morning and you're facing a problem that, that is something you don't know what to do about, you probably really appreciate the fact that he's the wonderful counselor. If you're here today and you're lonely, if you're here today and your family's a mess, if you're here today and you're struggling in, in your relationships, you have, you have a past that, that, or a present that is defined by a lot of family broken sh- brokenness, relationship broken. The fact that he, is a, that he is an eternal father probably really means something to you today. If you're here today and your needs are more than you can bear, you've got problems in your life that you can't do something about, the fact that he's mighty God is probably something you're relying on today. If you're here this morning and you feel like your life is chaotic, maybe there's a broken friendship, maybe you've been at war with someone recently, maybe there's a conflict going on in your life that you've been desperate to resolve and you can't resolve, There's a lot of ways this can apply, but if you're in one of those circumstances, listen, if you're here and you're struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with depression, the fact that he's the Prince of Peace might be the one that God this morning would speak to you and say, this is who my son is. This is who my son is. You can find your hope in him. These names that God has given to us revealed to us, shown us that this is who Jesus is. Which name speaks to you most? Please hear this. I would encourage you, whatever the circumstances are, to pick a name and then fix your hope on that name this week. Make it your personal theme for Christmas. He is my Prince of Peace. He is my Everlasting Father. He is my mighty God. You pick. He's my wonderful counselor. Pick the name and make that the hope that you fix your attention on this Christmas season. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, the angel appears to Mary, announces the birth of the Lord Jesus, the coming birth of the Lord Jesus and specifically assigns a name to the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. uh, uh, When he had considered this, meaning Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now, we all know the circumstances around this. We all know the circumstances around this. They're engaged. They're betrothed. They're not officially married yet. They have not been joined together as husband and wife. 
and she's pregnant. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. If you, if you take some time and ponder this, like what would it take for you to believe the next sentence? For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's your wife. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you knowing myself, some of what would be going through my mind would be something like this. Like, what are the odds? That's what I would be thinking. What are the odds? In all of the people on planet Earth right now, of all times... My wife and I just so happen it's us. Like the odds are astronomical, right? But what the angel says to Joseph is, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to call his name Jesus because he will save his people. He is going to save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Savior. That's what the name means, means Savior. So in the life of the Lord Jesus, we have exactly the same idea that we have in the lives of the patriarchs, the significance of a name, the importance of a name. All right, let me move on. Let me, let me draw your attention to two major points this morning and just, just follow along with me through, through, through this, this line of thinking about the name the power of a name this morning. The power of a name. I've titled this message, What's in a Name? The question, what's in a name? And the, the answer to that is power. There's power in a name. There's power in a name. How many of you have ever had someone call you a name? Someone called you a name. Please hear this. Uh, and I've said this many times, that old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a complete lie. It's a complete lie. There are many people's lives who have, their, their lives have been dominated by a word that was spoken to them by a name they were called. They, listen, for some some people become what they were called. It has a certain prophetic power to create something, it seems. They become it. Well, if that's what I am, I'm told I'm a good-for-nothing, then I guess I'm a good-for-nothing. And they live it out. What's interesting about it is some people respond to that like this. I will never be what I've been called, and I'm going to prove them wrong. And here's what they don't realize. They don't realize that when they've been called a good-for-nothing and they become the exact opposite, a workaholic high achiever, their name, their, their life is just as dominated by that name as the good-for-nothing is. They're still living to prove them wrong. The power of that name still rules over them. The power of that name has defined for them what their life is going to be. It's an amazing thing. How many people's lives are, are charted based upon the names they've been called? Based upon the things they've heard? Why? Because there's power in a name. Because there's power in a name. The names that people call us, the names that people call us have have. Uh, are, are things that become embedded within us. They become embedded within us. And they exert a power over us that sometimes borders on creative, sometimes borders on the prophetic. It has a certain birthing power. These are, these are things that are profound in our lives, the power of a name. So, listen, um, like this is the, less, the, the least deep, least profound thing you'll ever hear in a message. 
But I will tell you this, it's the one thing that if all of us could live it would change all of our lives. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. <laughs> right? Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down with love. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. Our words are incredibly powerful. Our words have incredible power. Now listen, there are some theologies who have taken, that have taken this to a place where it doesn't belong. I'll leave that for another day. But to acknowledge the power of a name or the power of a word is a is an incredibly good reminder to us that there is a certain life and death that is in the power of the tongue. And, and man, do you know how many people's marriage would be transformed if husbands and wives just spoke life-giving words to each other? Life-giving words to each other. Like, if you see a seed in your husband, like he's got in a seedling form this, this potential, and it's so underdeveloped, instead of telling him how undeveloped he is, call, that, call him that. <laughs> you know why? Because you give life to it. Because he probably knows it's there and is craving just for somebody to believe in him. And the same for her. Life-giving words. Life-giving words. How many marriages are destroyed because people can't stop speaking in words of death over each other? Fault-finding, condemning, blaming, guilty, bringing up the past. All the things we do that just bring death to our hearts, that make it hard for us to want to lay down in bed next to each other at night where it's, it's, it's just cold. It's cold, right? Because there's such power in our words. There's such power in our words. How many children have had their lives changed by the words parents speak over them, for good or for evil? The power of words, the power of names, the names that people call us are powerful. Secondly, names are uh, important because they're a vital uh, part of our identity. They're a part of who we are. They're a part of how we think of ourselves to be, the names that we've been called. Please hear this. It's a vitally important part of Jesus's, uh, of Jesus's birth. I want to read to you from Hebrews this morning um, uh, to give you an example of, of how, uh, how Jesus' names relate directly to this issue of identity. Hebrews chapter 2, let me read to you from verse, uh, verses 9 through 11. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I want you to hear this this morning. In this text, Jesus, we are told, was sent to this earth. He was sent by his Father to this earth. For this reason, he was sent to this earth to suffer and to die on our behalf, that through his suffering and death, you and I might become part of the family of God. Jesus becomes our Father. I want you to hear this. Your identity, your family identity, has nothing to do with your past or your works. It is all defined 
by the fact that he suffered and died for you. He purchased you. Now, let me just pause. Quick illustration. Um, And I, I say this with a great deal of gentleness. I don't know what everyone's past is here. But Um, adoption is a beautiful thing. When you adopt someone, however, you get, along with that adoption, all the baggage they bring with them. All the baggage. If you adopt a baby, you might be able to mitigate against a lot of baggage because it's a baby. But sometimes adopting a baby from some backgrounds, you're already taking upon yourself a lot of baggage, okay? And if you have the courage to adopt a teenager, you're bringing into your home someone that has a history that, that has shaped who they are, and all of that is walking into your home. Now, I want you to hear this. It all comes in with them. But when you adopt them, none of their past has any effect on whether they're your child or not. They're your child. The moment you adopt them, their name changes and they become part of your family. They become your offspring. They become your child. My point is simply this. That in this passage where the Lord Jesus is coming to this earth is described, what, he, what, what God reveals to us here is this, that he comes that he might suffer and that he might die in order that he might perfect as the author of, of, of he might be perfected as, as, uh, through his sufferings so that he can sanctify us sanctify us and make us children of the same Father. Make us children of the same Father. Listen, for both He, the Lord Jesus, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, that's us, are from, the, are from one Father, for which reason He, the Lord Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers. Brothers. That's a remarkable statement. Now, please hear this. Many of our struggles in life come from the fact that whether we like to admit it or not, a lot of us have some identity crisis going on in our lives. We don't really know who we are. We don't really know who we are. I just want to say this to you as a a follower of Jesus Christ. One of the most helpful things that you can do to make your Christian life successful is just to settle the issue once and for all of who you are. You cannot become, through good behavior, any more of or any less of a child of God. You were purchased. (laughs) Full stop. You were purchased by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please hear this. If you have a good day today, God loves you. If you have a bad day today, God loves you. If you have a worse day tomorrow, God loves you. You are who you are through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing changes that. Your behavior doesn't alter that. Oh, he might have to give you some discipline but he only disciplines those whom he loves. It has nothing to do with who you are. Who you are is a settled issue. We struggle. We struggle. Listen, I've done this before. Let me do it one more time. How many of you have children that joke around about who the favorite of the parents is? Quickly, go ahead. Raise your hand. How many of you, that's a joke in your family. I want to say this to your children as a favor. This is a public service to all parents in here. Okay? This is, this is, I'm actually being serious when I say that. I want to say this to all children in here because my brother and I are guilty of joking around about this. The older I get, the more I realize what a crime that is. 
If you allow yourself to believe that you are a less favored child, you are creating problems for yourself in your life. You're making up your own problems. There's a pity party involved. There's a, there's a, a, a less fortunate involved. There's, there's a whole series of things that happen in your heart when you choose to believe certain things about your identity. And please hear this. It's one of the key struggles that we have as Christians. One of the key struggles we have as Christians is that, that we know that Christ died for us and purchased us, but we feel like how we relate to God is so based on how good we are or how bad we are. Instead of realizing that it's based on our identity in Christ. It's based on our identity in Christ. It's an issue that you need to settle. I've said it many times. You and I need to realize that the Christian life is all about becoming who you already are. It's all about becoming who you already are. You can't be any more or less of a child of God than you are. You can just live it better. And please hear this. The way to live it best is not to think you're achieving it by doing better. It's to achieve it because of who you already are. Get your identity settled. Get your identity settled. I could try to give you illustrations all day, but, you know, if, if you're going to start thinking of yourself as a married person based upon how you behave morally, and, well, I wasn't so moral today, I sinned with my eyes, so I'm not really a husband or I'm not really a wife, you've got it backwards you're not going to become more of a husband or more of a wife by becoming better morally. Settling the issue that you are a husband or you're a wife will change the way you behave morally. Get it in your head. You're a spouse and you need to be faithful. Settle your identity. Settle your identity. Who are you? Who are you? It's a key, it's a key truth the Scripture calls us sons, daughters. It calls us saints. It calls us ambassadors of Christ. Settle who you are as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my last, and this is the most important point for this morning. This is what I want to focus on. This is what I want to close with in the last 10 minutes or so here. I want to close asking you to focus your attention with me on what I'll call the ultimately powerful name the ultimately powerful name. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is preaching his Pentecost message. And, and here's what he says to his audience. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him, Jesus, the one you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is who he is. Now let me just define the terms real quick. Let me start with Christ. Christ means anointed one. It identifies Jesus as the Messiah. As the Messiah. That's who it identifies him to be. He was the promised Messiah. In other words, the one who was chosen and sent by the Father. Boy, I wish I could say this better, but if we let it sink into our hearts. It means that Jesus was the one who was chosen and sent by the Father to fulfill all the promises that God had made to Israel and then through Israel to the rest of the world. That's who Jesus is. He's the central figure of everything. He's the key to everything. All the promises that God gave to Israel are going to be fulfilled because of the Lord Jesus. When he promises them a kingdom, that the throne of David will not, it's because of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. 
when, when he talks about uh, the promises that God gave to Abraham, through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. When, he, when, he said, when Peter says, this is Christ, what he's saying is all the promises that God ever made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the Jewish people, they all find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about him. The Messiah, that's who he is. It's a profound statement. It's a, it's a powerful name. But he says he's also called him Lord. He has made him Lord. Now what do we mean by Lord? Lord is a title of majesty, of kingship. It's a title of authority. It's a name of rulership. Please hear this. That deserves and that rightly expects loyalty and respect and obedience. I just want to pause here, and please don't hear this as a statement of politics. Just bear with me for one second. We have gotten so used in our, so used in our country to feeling free to talk, talk disrespectfully of authority that I think we don't have much of a concept of authority anymore. We don't really think we, we owe anybody much of anything anymore. I, and this is, what I'm gonna, this is the least important of all the things I'm going to say this morning. But when I was in my 20s, when I was in my 20s, and people found out I was a pastor, and they swore in front of me, it was common for me to hear people say, they'd swear and they'd turn to me and go, please forgive me, I didn't mean to swear in front of you. I'm in my 50s now and people don't do that anymore. They don't care. There has been a coarsening of our culture. A, a, a sense of people not having much respect for anything that, that at one time, somebody spoke with me at re- when I was, I'm sorry for the 20-somethings, when, when, I was, when I was young. Right? You look at it and you go, yeah, 20s, 50s. There's just not the same sense of respect that there once was. That's my experience anyways. My point is this. Please hear this. When we as Christians call Jesus Lord, it means something. It means he's our king. It means that he has a title in our lives of authority that deserves respect. It deserves loyalty. It deserves obedience. You know, this idea that that of self-styled Christianity, you can make it whatever you want it. Please hear this. He's Lord. He tells us which end is up and which end is down. He speaks to us. He's Lord. This is the ultimately powerful name. That is, as Lord, His name is above every other name. Everything else answers to Him. You and I answer to him. Now, I'm going to close with one last passage, and I'm going to ask you just to follow with me step by step through this. I want to make this issue of Jesus' lordship as clear as I possibly can in the last five minutes this morning. I want to make this as clear as I can. Philippians chapter 2 is one of the best places in, in Scripture to address this issue. Philippians 2, here's what we're told about the Lord Jesus. Starting in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I'm going to close bullet point with four truths about Jesus' lordship that we need to pay attention to from this passage. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? First, it means a title that is won or earned. This is huge. It's significant. What it says in this passage is that because Jesus emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, therefore God highly exalted him. In other words, you did everything I asked you to do. You have earned the title, Lord. I want you to hear this this morning. The significance of Jesus coming to this earth and dying the death of the cross is that he earned for us what we could never earn. There's only one that has the ability to earn from the Father, and that's the Lord Jesus. He earned the title. You and I get adopted. We don't do anything to earn it. We just get chosen. (laughs) We get chosen, right? He earned it. The point is, this is a title that the Lord Jesus earned by obedient suffering unto death of the cross. You and I are who we never deserve to be. He is who he earned the right to be. He's Lord. He earned it. That's number one. Number two, not just a title. It is, secondly, a fact that we can't do anything about. Listen, I want you to know this. I say this lovingly. You can like it. You can dislike it. At the end of the day, none of that makes any difference. Jesus is Lord, and you can't do anything about it. That's it. Period. He's Lord. It's the reality of the world. It's the fact of the world. He is Lord. It's an established reality. It places him above every other position or title. That's the fact. He's Lord. Now, the third truth is this, that today, right now, while you're sitting there, his lordship is a choice that you can freely accept or refuse. And this is just plain and simple the way it is. It's a choice. You can accept his lordship. You can refuse his lordship. Now, I'm going to give you two scriptures out of the bazillions that could be given this morning. Okay? But just two for you to ponder. Um, I mean, can I just be as practical as I possibly can this morning? When you go home today, when you go home today, the lordship of Christ means that you should talk to your spouse in a certain way. But you can or you can't, or you don't. He's not going to make you. The lordship of Christ means certain things, should be, but they're not always. You can accept his lordship, or you can refuse his lordship. You can refuse to live under it, and that's just the reality of things. Now, let me give you two, uh, really quickly, two scriptures. I just put up the text Let the picture speak to you this morning. In Matthew 16, verse 24, here's what Jesus said. If, did you hear that word? Sometimes I think that we get so complicated in our attempts at theology that we ignore the obvious. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross, and follow me. There you have it. It's purely voluntary. It starts with if the Lord, being who he is, sets the conditions. You either do it or you don't do it. Do you know that he's not going to make you turn the other cheek? He's not going to make you love your enemies. He's not going to make you forgive those who mistreat you. 
He's not going to make you do anything. Please hear this. If you ask him for his help, he will enable you to do it. He just will not force you to do it. His lordship is voluntary at this time. Please hear this. When Jesus agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, thine be done. He defines the meaning of a cross for all of time and eternity. It's voluntary. Crosses are voluntary. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly of my own accord. It's voluntary. Following Jesus as his servant is voluntary. It's voluntary. Here's the second picture. And I'll let the picture speak for itself. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus is speaking to his church, and I'll just quickly set the stage. In Revelation 3, Jesus is talking to a church that has grown lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. Because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. And so he says to this church, I counsel of you. I counsel you. Not I command I counsel you to buy of me gold. He tells them, buy some eye salve and put it on your eyes so that you can see. And he closes with this statement that we have borrowed for purposes of evangelism, but is really a scripture written to the church. He says to the church, to Christians who are lukewarm, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And then there's that word again. If. If. You will open up the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me. It's voluntary. Now, I've pointed this out before, but the great works of art, if you look closely at the, at the picture there, I'm trying to see on that corner. Most of the great works of art that depict this, this scene have a door with no handle on it. A door with no handle on it. And the reason is because it's not opened from the outside, it's open from the inside. That's the text. If you will open, I will not beat down the door. I don't have a key. I won't force myself in. You open or, do, or not. Or not. You know, I'm just going to close by saying it this way. It's a remarkable thing. We all know this, and we actually live this way. You know the reason why we, we at, le- at least we should, why we apologize when we sin or when we fail or when we treat somebody meanly? Because we don't look at it and say, I was predetermined to do that. We say, I have sinned. And therefore, I need to confess. I failed to live under the lordship of Christ. I have disobeyed. I have sinned. His lordship is purely voluntary. I just want to say this as a quick aside. Please hear this. If Jesus' lordship over his church is voluntary in this day, men, what does that say about scriptures that tell us that our wives are supposed to submit to us? Please hear this. Our, Our leadership of our homes, our wives' submission to us, is a lower category than the church's submission to Christ. If the church's submission to Christ is voluntary, don't lord over your wives. 
It's voluntary. Listen, make her want to. (laughs) Be the man that she wants to be obedient to God's word with. Make it that. Lordship is voluntary. It's voluntary. It's a powerful truth. Last one is this. It's voluntary, but you need to know this also. Christ's lordship is a destiny that you will, we will all have to face. Today it's voluntary, but in this passage that we just read, it says that there's going to come a day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I want you to know this. You can bow now or you can bow later, but bow you will. Bow you will. Bow now, bow later. And I've just got this little sneaking suspicion about me that says that to bow now is better than to bow by force later. In other words, if I can say it to you this way, how many of you would confess that there are some things you know you should do for the sake of Christ that you just don't want to do? Anybody besides me? Embrace the Lordship of Christ because you have the privilege of obeying Him as your Lord voluntarily now. And what's so amazing about it is that He promises a reward to those who faithfully serve Him. He doesn't owe it to us, but He promises it to us. The flip side of that is, if you don't, you're going to have to answer to Him as your Lord one day in the future. a powerful truth. And so I ask you this morning, if you're here and you're struggling with some aspect of Christ's lordship over your life, I know I should obey in this issue, but it's hard for me to obey in this issue. It's hard for me to do what is right in this issue. In this issue. I urge you to embrace the lordship of Christ over your life now by choice and not wait until his lordship is imposed on you at some point in the future. Embrace it by choice. You will not regret it. I'm going to close with this. I just love this. I have to mention it in closing. I read it this morning in my devotions. I hadn't planned to say it, but I'm going to just read this verse to you. The letter in Revelation to the church of Pergamos Chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I don't have time to, but let me just listen to the rest of the verse. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. I don't know what that does for you. If you come into my office, you'll see that I've kind of taken up my rock collecting from my childhood. My kids purchased some stones for me. They know how much I like these things. And I got to tell you, the idea of being handed a white stone by my Savior. Like, I'm, I'm kind of excited just to see what the rock looks like. I, I just, just, they're cool. I like rocks. But to know that it has a name written on it, it's a name that only he knows and I know. I don't know if you've ever done this. I'm walking around here getting ready this morning just thinking, Like, if I were going to give myself a name, what name would it be? Lord, what's the name that defines my life? I put a few titles. It fits, but doesn't quite, it's not perfect. There's this, there's that. Like, what? Listen, he knows, and he's going to give me a stone that has a name on it that's the right name for me. It's the right name for me. A name is meaningful. 
Do not forget this Christmas season that that baby born in a manger came to purchase you. You're part of the family of God. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. Choose to submit to his lordship in this day. Do it by choice. Don't do it, be, don't do it just one day because you have to. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're here this morning and you're struggling with some area of obedience, I know I should forgive this person. I know I should ask this person to forgive me. I know that the way I'm treating or talking to my spouse isn't what it should be. This is not ultimately an issue between you and another person. This is ultimately an issue between you and God. It's the Lordship of Christ that defines what we should do or how we should act. And so I welcome you this year as you think about that baby born in a manger to embrace the whole story. Remember him born in a, in a manger, in a stable laid in a manger, but, but remember him crucified, risen again, exalted to the right hand of the Father, having won the title, the ultimate name of power. He's Lord. And every other name is under him. And every knee will one day bow. My encouragement to you, and please hear this. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me. That's important. That's the ultimately important truth. But today, I'm, st I'm sitting in a church. I'm talking to people who, who, in this building, we have a certain expectation. It's likely that you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. And yeah, I, I do know that I'm talking to primarily a Christian audience. And I'm reminding you that Submitting to Christ's lordship is voluntary. He will not force you to be and to do what is right, what is pleasing to him. And I'm urging you as a Christian to bend your knee, set yourself aside, take up your cross, be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow his example. He humbled himself we can humble ourselves. Lord, if there's a person in this room this morning for whom your lordship is kind of a Garden of Gethsemane moment right now, they know what your will is, they know what should be, having a hard time living it. Don't want to do it. Or want to do it and can't seem to be able to do it. Lord, I'm asking today that the twin truths of our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, we are your children, and the truth that you are Lord and supreme over our lives would combine to transform the ways that we live and act. Lord, I ask that if there's a need for repentance in our lives from some area of disobedience, that we would repent and repent thoroughly. And Father, I pray that where there is that need for change, that the power of your Holy Spirit, the truth of your word, the fellowship of the saints would be used to transform us and to make us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us in those places we struggle, Lord, to be obedient to you. Give us willing hearts, give us humble hearts, give us obedient hearts to you, we pray. Lord, I ask that we would not, in the celebration of this season, 
that we would not neuter the power of this season, but that we would remember what the power of the incarnation is. You came to be Jesus, Savior. You came to be the Savior by purchasing us. And in doing so, you won the right to claim us as your family and to be our Lord. May we be willing to live for you and under you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we started 10 minutes late. I took an extra 10 minutes. Thanks for bearing with me. Choir practice, children, you'll be 